I'm Steve Forbes, and this is What's Ahead. Today, I sit down with United States Secretary of the Air Force, Barbara Barrett, to talk about the creation and future of the Space Force. But first, what's ahead? No other state has so many assets as California. Fantastic climate, dazzling scenery, diverse ecosystems, rich agricultural soil, immense space, abundant water. No wonder it became the most populous and prosperous state in the country. If it were a nation, California's economy would be the fifth largest in the world. But alas, no other state has done so much to undermine its economy and drive so many people away to other parts of the country. Shockingly, California has America's highest poverty rate. Some 30 years ago, Forbes magazine wrote a cover story warning that the Golden State was taking its prosperity for granted with destructive policies, regulations, and taxes. It's been downhill ever since. Only the high-tech mecca in Silicon Valley has saved the once Golden State from financial ruin. California has committed every economic sin to sink its economy. It vies with New York and New Jersey as the highest tax state in the union. Its top personal income tax is a suffocating 13.3%, and it is toying with the idea of boosting that to over 16%. Its mandates to force utilities to use alternative energy sources for generating electricity, primarily wind and solar, have led to devastating blackouts. California is a huge buyer of -of out-of-state electricity because of these artificial shortages. Reckless forest management, such as not systematically clearing underbrush, is the critical reason why the state has been afflicted with catastrophic fires. California's water policies are perverse. Most notoriously, it flushes almost half of its annual rainfall into the Pacific Ocean. That's right. Despite perennial headlines about the state's water problems, the state gets plenty of water from rainfall to meet all of its needs and then some. California's massive nitpicking regulations have been suffocating businesses. Its land use regulations have made housing appallingly expensive. A development that might be approved in a few weeks in Texas takes many years in California. The small raise that things may finally start to change, a referendum that would have substantially raised property taxes on commercial facilities, went down to surprising defeat. Voters made the connection that higher taxes would mean higher rents for stores, which in turn would mean higher consumer prices or the stores closing down. A referendum was passed that saved Uber, Lyft, and other users of independent drivers from destruction. California Democrats and independent observers were stunned that Republicans picked up seats in Congress from California. Let us hope that these are portents that California can one day become again the golden state. All of us will benefit. And now my interview with Secretary Barbara Barrett. My special guest today is Secretary Barbara Barrett. She's the 25th Secretary of the Air Force. And uh, before we get into uh, your remarkable career and especially the creation of our new branch of the military, the Space Force, can you just quickly give us how the military is coping with COVID? You've taken a particular interest in personnel. You recognize as a leader that you can have all these great strategies and ideas, but it depends on people. So how have you, uh, the Air Force in particular, but the military in general, cope with the COVID crisis to keep up morale, uh, especially at a time like this? Well, COVID has had an impact on the United States military and the Air Force and Space Force, just as it has on the rest of society. Our primary focus is keep our people well, perform our mission, and then do what we can for the rest of society. So we have been uh, working. Our people have been, in many instances, in isolation. We've been monitoring it carefully and, and, uh, and watching both inside the military as well as in the communities. We have at the same time worked on ways to make sure if our members were to come down with COVID, how do we ensure that we can continue to perform the mission? So we have established a blue team and a silver team in some settings where we absolutely positively cannot uh, miss uh, our duty. Missile silos, for instance, people working very closely together can't go down because of COVID. So we have separate teams so that we have uh, ability to isolate. And then for society, uh, the United States Air Force and the United States military have been very much involved from the very first. When we need to evacuate people from Wuhan, American citizens that were at the consulate there, it was the United States Air Force that was called for both the lift uh, 
and housing of people who had an illness. And we weren't sure exactly what the contagion level was and what the impact would be. So from the very beginning, the United States Air Force was called upon to assist in America's need. Great. And now you, uh, as secretary, oversee 685,000 airmen. Mm-hmm. You've uh, been heading up the Air Force uh, about a year now, October 2019. And uh, the Space Force itself was formally launched uh, in December 2019, which is not a moment too soon. Before we get to that, though, you've had a most remarkable career yourself. Really, if uh, one had to design somebody to uh, make this mission possible, they would have uh, come up with you. I graduated from uh, Arizona State. You got uh, various degrees there, including a law degree. And I want to get a little background on why you went into uh, the law for a while. You're a pilot, instrument rated pilot. You're also trained to be an astronaut. You didn't get to go up, but you uh, took the full training. And remarkably, you uh, completed the courses in four and a half months instead of the several years that usually takes to do that. Before the age of 30, you were executive for, uh, I call them Forbes 500 companies, large companies, not the other one, but uh, remarkable. You've held a number of appointments, the CAB, Civil Aeronautics Board, before uh, that was uh, deregulated out of existence. You were administrative, deputy administrator of the FAA. You taught at the Kennedy School, uh, leadership there. You were a fellow at the Kennedy School at Harvard, Kennedy School of Government. A uh, number of other posts, Aerospace Corp., you were the chairperson there. You uh, also were uh, the ambassador to Finland, where you, among other things, helped round up reindeer. And you also did a dogfight, so to speak, with the head of the Finnish Air Force. Years before, you were the first woman, civilian woman, to land an F-18 Hornet, I think, on an aircraft carrier. And those in the pilot world know, landing an aircraft on an aircraft carrier is no mean feat, but you've done it and you've done it again and again. So in Finland, you uh, had a simulated dogfight with the head of the Finnish Air Force, which also uses F-18s. And I think uh, diplomatically, it was a tie uh, in in terms of you both got hits and then uh, called a quits, so everyone uh, save face. You uh, also each year do a life list thing, whether it's uh, climbing Mount Kilimanjaro or uh, doing the Grand Canyon rim to rim, among other things. So uh, you grew up, you got your true grit growing up on a farm in Pennsylvania, where as you say, on a farm, there are no excuses. You gotta get the stuff done. And before the age of 10, you learned to drive, milk a cow, but most remarkably in my mind, was you learned to shoe a horse. Uh, people don't realize today that means you take the hoof of a horse, you've got to uh, hold the hoof and use a special hammer and hammer in the nails, uh, literally hammering it on the hoof of a horse. How did you learn to do that before the age of 10 <laughs> and, and live to tell about it? <laughs> My father was a cowboy and he used to shoot. We had uh, 24 horses and uh, I was able to shoot 23 of them. One of them, I didn't make the shoes. I shod them. I would change the shape of the shoes so that it fit the horse. But uh, I learned how to shoe a horse by, from my father, who it's an essential part of having horses is you have to be able to, you don't want them lame, uh, one bad leg, one bad foot, and the horse is not usable. So it was really important to know how to shoe a horse. And it's really hard work. It's what made a lawyer out of me. Remarkable. But but then uh, at the age of 13, uh, tragedy hits your family. You had five siblings. And your father suddenly died of a heart attack. And at the walk us through, at the age of 13, you ended up having to be the breadwinner for this family at the, at the farm, the ranch in Pennsylvania. Yes, um, it was a um, horrific tragedy. My youngest sister was just born. Uh, I was 13. Um, there were five siblings. My mother fell apart. She was a city girl, and there she was on a farm in the middle of southwestern Pennsylvania in the hills of the coal country of southwestern Pennsylvania. So it it fell to me to, um, well, we had horses. So it fell to me to take people horseback riding as my father had done. And so I, at 13, was running a business. I did know how to drive a car, so I was able to drive not legally, but we had dad's rules, which were you could drive on the dirt roads as long as it wasn't a paved road. So I was able to do the farm work and keep the horses healthy, well, and take people horseback riding, teach people to ride. I used to train horses and uh, that was the income for the family uh, until 
we all went to college. And uh, you also learned a great fear of that, not just the normal course of trying to keep things together, but fear of liability. Somebody could get injured on the horse and sue you and suddenly you would be wiped out, which got your interest in the law. You've really done your homework. Yes, that that was exactly right. I wanted to know what are our duties? What is our obligation and how do we meet those duties? How much responsibility do the horseback riders take for their safety and how best can we keep them safe? Studying the law and studying horsemanship uh, to make sure we had the best equipment, uh, the best trained horses. Nature provided the best environment and the best scenery. And uh, you have to have a meeting of the minds. The horses have a vote in where they want to go and how they want to behave. So we needed to have well-behaved horses, but also riders who knew what they were doing. So part of it was having the riders get educated. And then with the education and with well-trained horses, the mission was to make sure people enjoyed it by going into some of the most extraordinary scenery uh, in, in America. Two legacies of your father. One is he had an interest in uh, the West, Arizona, which rubbed off on you, but also relate the incident where he, when you were a youngster, six, seven, I don't know how old you were, he asked you what you wanted to be when you grew up and you gave the expected answer and what did he tell you? What, what, what did you say and what did he tell you in response when he asked you, what do you want to do, Barbara, when you grow up? Well, that seems to be the question that every young person is asked. I don't know how old I was, maybe five, maybe seven. And um, I, at that time, had already, unbeknownst to me or unconsciously, I had been entrenched to believe that I had three choices. I could be a teacher, a secretary, or a nurse. I wasn't thinking Air Force secretary at the time, but a teacher, a secretary, or a nurse. I didn't know then that I pass out at the site of ketchup. So I said I thought I'd be a nurse. And my dad was working on the tractor at the time, and he didn't turn around. He didn't, no eye contact. He just said four words. He said, why not a doctor? And that was a moment that opened my eyes to the idea that girls could be something other than teacher, secretary, or nurse. Not that those weren't um, noble professions as well, but that I, as a girl, would not be limited to those three things. So now I do know that I wouldn't make a very good doctor, uh, but uh, I'm proud to serve as Secretary of the Air Force. So he kindled your interest in Arizona, which is how you went from Pennsylvania to uh, Arizona. You uh, spent your career knocking down, helping uh, remove barriers for women as you uh, moved ahead in your career. Uh, Write to us the unusual internship you had when you were at Arizona with uh, one Sandra Day O'Connor, then a state senator, later, of course, the first woman to sit on a U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, exactly. And today is an interesting day to think about that as we think about the importance of having a woman's voice, a woman's insights into the law. At Arizona State University, I went to Arizona State thinking I would go just for a semester. My dad had been there as a cowboy. He'd lived in Arizona as a cowboy before World War II. And I wanted to see this place that he so admired. To work my way, I was still supporting my family. So I was working a lot of jobs. And there was one job that offered pay and credit hours. And that was an internship at the state legislature. In that role, I got the chance to see and work with the extraordinary Sandra Day O'Connor, Senate Majority Leader, the first woman in the country to be the majority leader of any state house or Senate. And uh, so I got to see her in action and see the leadership she demonstrated. And she was really quite remarkable. Arizona is a place with a lot of remarkable women. Our, our Supreme Court Chief Justice was a woman in the 60s and 70s in Arizona. But Sandra O'Connor was quite the leader. And she was not just the majority leader of the state Senate, but she also chaired one of the most important committees. And she worked to help women at the same time. She went through the entire Arizona revised statutes, the other wall full of documents, of books, And she gender neutralized the law so that women and men, boys and girls, had comparable, equal opportunity under the eyes of the law of Arizona. That was way ahead of her time, way ahead of uh, time for what other states did. Remarkable. And one of the things you've uh, focused on is leadership. And I love how you describe leadership, uh, having vision, applying the needed skills, working well with the team driving to the goal, and not being deterred. You've been advisor to five different presidents. In the late 80s, early 90s, you were a civilian advisor to the Secretary of Defense. 
And at the time, by law, women were barred from combat aircraft. They could do tankers and the like, but they could not do bombers. They could not do fighter aircraft. Relate to us how applying those leadership skills and the tenacity, what my grandfather called stick-to-itiveness, you got that changed. Remember, this was 30 years ago when uh, you might say the consciousness was very different than it is today. Well, it, uh, it wasn't me alone. It was a team of people that got that law changed and then the rule changed. But it did take some gumption in that it, there was a lot of opposition. Think of the scene that has been oft replayed of the tobacco CEOs um, with their hands raised. There was a comparable scene on allowing women to fly fighters and uh, bombers. They were allowed to fly tankers and transports, but not fighters or bombers. And testifying before the Senate Armed Services Committee, the chiefs, the chief of staff of the Army, chief of staff of the Air Force, chief of Naval Operations, and commandant of the Marine Corps, all testified that they didn't think women should be flying fighter or bomber aircraft. In fact, one of the chiefs, he said explicitly, I'd rather have a less qualified man than a more qualified woman if I'm in the air. Um, that was the attitude then. So it did take some uh, stick to to get over that hump. But eventually the law was changed. I won't forget that it was a vote of 69 to 30 that uh, passed the law in the Senate to make that change to allow women to fly fighters and bomber aircraft. It's amazing now. And uh, we have uh, Martha McSally from your state who uh, was in the Air Force and a fighter pilot, I believe, among other things, a leader of a- A-10s. Yeah. Uh, before we get uh, to the Space Force, I just have to ask you, uh, relate to us how you uh, became an astronaut, how that happened. and. Uh, you weren't out of college when you did this. That's what's amazing. You know, mostly people think, oh, you got to be in your 20s. Uh, and uh, here you uh, showed any time of life you can become an astronaut. Yes, I think I'm the accidental astronaut in that it was highly improbable. Uh, I never had that aspiration, that dream. But you would be familiar with the, the company Space Adventures. And the Space Adventures Corporation had been working to offer people astronaut tourism opportunities. And I uh, had met, as you would know, the CEO of that company, and they had an unexpected seat. A seat that had been occupied came up available. They ended up buying that seat, and they had the primary astronaut to fly, but they needed a backup. And it was just as I had finished serving as ambassador to Finland, and uh, they asked if I would be interested in doing that. And at first I said, no, of course, I'll help find somebody, but I wouldn't be the person to do that. And then they came back and said, we need somebody and we need them right now. Would you be willing to do it? Well, really, I really, it seems so far-fetched for me to actually have that opportunity. But when pressed, I, I had just finished as ambassador. I had not yet rejoined boards and the kinds of things that would make it impossible on my time to be able to um, do full commitment to the training that it would take. And uh, so I ended up uh, accepting, going and living round the clock. We did in four and a half months what usually is a multi-year project of preparing. And you did this in uh, Kazakhstan and then what they call Star City in Russia. This wasn't like uh, going to a place in the U.S. This is a whole foreign atmosphere. Yes, and the lessons were all taught in Russian. I didn't know the Russian alphabet when I got there, but we had to learn Russian, just as we would expect the Russians to learn English when they were training on our astronaut equipment. Our training required that we learn Russian. And of course, the switchology, everything in the Soyuz capsule was in Russian, not just Russian, but Russian acronyms. So it was a great experience. It was around the clock. Classes were from 7.30 in the morning uh, till 9.30 at night. Um, we had to stay fit. So we exercised early, early in the morning and studied until two in the morning. So we didn't sleep a lot, but it was just the two of us. So just two students in the class most of the time, very customized, working with an interpreter and with an instructor on Russian language. But uh, we had to learn the wiring diagrams of the space equipment of the launch vehicle, as well as the, you know, the uh, International Space Station. 
It's amazing, learning a language and being an astronaut at the same time. <laughs> I, can't, I can't get my mind around that. And Steve, genuinely, I thank you for uh, the introductions that, that uh, resulted in all of that. Oh, it's, it's amazing. And uh, talking about the Air Force itself, uh, the Air Force, as people may not fully realize, has been really, uh, really been worked hard in the last uh, 20 years since 9-11 and uh, not always getting the resources needed. One of the things that has to be done from time to time, it's not pleasant, but it's got to be done, is nuclear modernization. Not glamorous, it's expensive, but it's got to be done. Where does that stand now? Is that proceeding finally now to do what you have to do if you have a credible deterrence? Steve, as you know, the United States is protected by a nuclear triad. We have submarines, we have missiles, and we have bomber aircraft that can carry nuclear weapons. All three elements of that nuclear triad are important. They are essential to America's protection. Two of those legs are, Amer are Air Force, the missiles and the bombers. So the United States Air Force is essential to our nuclear protection. After the Cold War ended, maybe we got a bit uh, complacent about modernizing, about keeping those uh, tools up to date. So all of that now is coming due, where we have to modernize. We have to replace some of the, the things that we uh, count on. The bombs have a shelf life. We have to modernize those. We have to test them and we have to keep them strong. And so it's time now for a major modernization of our uh, missiles and a replacement. We're still operating the B-52 that was first operated in the early 50s. So um, grandsons are flying the aircraft of their grandfathers. Yes, and sometimes great-grandsons. It's an amazing story of longevity for that venerable aircraft. But we're building new bombers, newer capability. All of that is essential in order to have the nuclear deterrent. We, as President Reagan said, America doesn't pick fights. We won't look to be the belligerent. But if we need to have a nuclear capability, uh, we want to have it available to us. But most of all, having it will often be the deterrent that keeps others from picking those fights. Now, the Air Force itself has uh, been described, you, uh, you're a fifth generation aircraft, but some have said it's uh, really only 18% fifth generation, 82-4, uh, and the weapons are really third generation. A lot of work has to be done. There's been the goal of having 386 squadrons from, I guess, what is it, 316 or whatever it is now. And then there's a shortage of fighter pilots, one reads. So what are the goals to uh, get our capabilities up to snuff, so to speak, and yet expand at the same time, given the uh, needs to uh, keep the world safe, keep us safe? As you would expect, modernizing is a constant process. And especially in war, someone once asked, what is it that matters the most? Is it our, our cyber defense, our space defense, our, our aircraft, our bombers or our fighters? And the answer is the enemy gets to pick. Uh, whatever is our weakness, that's where we would anticipate being tested. So we've got to keep modernizing. We've got to keep uh, ahead of what threats exist. And so that's our real focus is we've got to have the best in both air and space. We need to be attentive to cyberspace. Uh, it has often been said that the first shot of the next war is likely to occur in either space or in cyber. And those are both uh, elements that the United States Air Force pays attention to. And science, technology, these are moving very rapidly right now with artificial intelligence, machine learning, hypersonics, biological, nuclear and chemical developments and training and things that are happening in other countries. We have to be attentive to directed energy. And we have to pay attention also to what our defense industry uh, concentration is doing to our own competitiveness. So yes, it's a, it's a time when Technology is moving fast, and we have to be fast and nimble with it. And that's, uh, that's why the Space Force is being designed to be innovative, bold, and agile. Let's get to the Space Force, because this is a time when China's been very, very uh, ambitious in space. Uh, they've expanded their defense capability sort of to push us back uh, so that we don't get uh, close to the areas that they think is their real estate, so to speak. 
space has been called the strategic high ground. Walk us through how space, we're utterly dependent on uh, peace in space or security in space. Most people don't fully realize it. We use it every day, but we don't fully realize its significance. Ah, Steve, you're exactly right. It is a remarkable thing how completely dependent most Americans and people around the world are in our day-to-day lives on space. As I've said before, I think most people before their first cup of coffee in the morning, they've used space. It's ubiquitous, but it's invisible. So most people don't realize it. I mean, you may waken to an alarm clock that is set to a timer that is airborne, that is spaceborne, that's coming from a satellite. Um, Our ATMs, you can't pump gas without uh, using space. Uh, The news probably is derived from a space asset. Uh, Our weather predictions are coming from space assets, crop monitoring, environmental monitoring. Uh, These things are all dependent upon space. Just in summary, our information, our navigation, and our communications are all space dependent. It's ubiquitous, but it's invisible. We don't see those lines to space. If they were all tethered by some wires, we'd be wrapped up in it like Lilliputian, like Jonathan Swift. But in fact, we are dependent, but not conscious in many cases of how dependent we are. So with that dependence, we built this system, the GPS system especially. As my predecessor in this role said, we built a glass house before we knew about stones in that we have a vulnerable system, but we built it without consciousness of that vulnerability. So now those satellites, that GPS system upon which we depend has been unprotected. We need to be able to protect that capability, and we need to deter others from attacking our GPS satellites, and we need to replace the current satellites with less vulnerable, more jam-resistant and protected satellites. You've pointed out uh, when we went to the moon half a century ago, it was really uh, two actors in space. Now there's scores of countries, literally thousands and thousands of satellites and tens of thousands or more on the drawing board. Um, describe some of the disturbing, aggressive actions, starting with what China did in 2007 when it blew out deliberately, but show the world they could do it, one of their own satellites, and a couple of things the Russians have been doing uh, in the past years. Walk us through those, why it's uh, not the benign place it was a half a century ago. Well, that's it exactly. In 2007, the Chinese did blow up one of their own satellites, just demonstrating their ability to do it. They created a huge debris field that will create havoc uh, for long into the future in that there are now thousands of pieces of that satellite floating through space or rocketing through space, most of them at 17,000 miles an hour, creating a big hazard to anything else that's up there in that pattern. The Russians very recently, earlier this year, uh, have a, a satellite that they launched, and it's a very interesting one. You've all you've seen the nesting dolls that uh, are yes. the babushka dolls that are famous in Russia. Uh, well, this satellite could be called a babushka doll in that inside the satellite it spawned a second satellite, just as a nesting doll releases a second nesting doll. That second satellite, we were able to observe that it was a. Uh, malicious satellite, that it was a weapon. Now, this all would have been classified in earlier times, but it's important to talk about these because people may not appreciate or understand how very dangerous that environment is. That second Russian satellite came threateningly close to our own satellites uh, in the same, in a similar orbit. KH-11. Exactly. If you'd done that, the equivalent on the seas where there are established rules, that would have been considered a very hostile act. Have they backed off from that yet? I know we protested. Have they, uh, or are they still close enough to make, let us know they are watching us? It's still, uh, it's still a threat. And the challenge is, as you've described, that we don't have rules of the road. It's time for us to establish in that domain of space, what are the rules? How close is too close? How do you behave in space? And we've seen the Russians with their uh, jet aircraft and with their maritime capabilities coming too close. And they are 
openly defying the rules of the road, but there are rules of the road. Uh, Similarly, in space, we need to have those rules so that we know uh, what is a protestable action. And that's we're building through the space uh, force and through space doctrine, rules of the road that help to identify what is, uh, how close is too close. I gather in July, uh, the Russians uh, fired a projectile into outer space for the first time, uh, was Cosmos uh, 2543, another aggressive action. Exactly. The Russians are demonstrating their ability to uh, take action that is very threatening to our assets. Anti-satellite missiles from the Russians let us know that our assets in space are not invulnerable. And it's not just Russia and China. Uh, Iran earlier this year, the Buckley incident, where we avoided casualties, but missiles were fired at us and we were able to uh, take immediate action. North Korea in March. Uh, China, you going to the dark side of the moon. Uh, and apparently they want a full-time presence on the moon by 2024. Very, very different environment. Space is not optional today. We count on it for our day-to-day life, but we also need to be attentive to the importance of space just as it was in the 60s. It was vital for us to be among the leaders in space, to be the leader in space. And America today is the leader in space. But we can see the trajectory of China especially and Russia increasingly that they are looking to plant flags and develop space capabilities, and space resources in ways that have not been the case before. And if they, in effect, control space, somebody said they could uh, turn our intercontinental ballistic missiles into antiques if they have that, uh, in effect, watching down on us and seeing everything that we do and uh, being able to uh, paralyze it if, uh, if a conflict came. So this gets to the new Space Force concept uh, sounds needed. We need it. So how is it going? Uh, Let's start with personnel. You're you're part of the Joint Chiefs, the the Space Force. You've got 86 cadets out of the Air Force Academy uh, joining the Space Force. How How do you build a new service and do so where it's not just throwing some stuff together and saying the new uniform, therefore it is. How are you establishing that essential esprit and sense of a new culture? This is different from the Air Force, different from the Marines. It's really a a real new organism, so to speak. Well, as we close in on our first year anniversary on December 20th, uh, there is a lot that has been done. From the first day, we started off with 16,000 people that were working for the Space Force, but they were not members of the Space Force. They, They were still wearing the uniform of a previous service, most of them the United States Air Force. Over time, we have started to build the Space Force as members. So there's a difference between working for the Space Force and transitioning into taking off the old uniform and putting on a new uniform that would be the Space Force uniform. That requires swearing in again, being commissioned as an officer again, and some administrative details. But to get the job done, the 16,000 people from the first day, they were continuing the job that they had been doing. But in addition to what had been going on, what we need to do is keep uh, juggling those balls and start building the new culture, the new elements that will comprise the Space Force. What we're really focused on is building the capability. What are the things that need to be done that can only be done from space? How do we protect what we've got there? How do we build capability for the military men and women that are using our assets and capabilities from space? What are new capabilities that they need? How do we make sure that they still have the targeting and the uh, awareness, the situational awareness that they have been getting from space? And what new capabilities do they need? Uh, And those rules of the road, establishing the doctrine, how do we define what acceptable behavior is in space and how is space to be developed and used as it no doubt will be in the future. So progress is being made. We are building a bold, agile, and innovative force focused really on capabilities, 
For the first time, we have a budget. Now, it's the budget that has been uh, reassigned uh, from other places. Uh, but the mission we have is to build greater space capability and protect the space capability that we've had. The budget uh, number I saw was $15 billion exactly. first year, hopefully increasing in the years after. One of the challenges in anything like this is uh, you have some 60-odd agencies that have a, a space piece in their portfolio, including the armed services. You mentioned earlier how uh, the challenge with the Army having to give up uh, the Army Air Force to create this new entity. Just quickly explain why you need a separate entity that can truly focus so it's not just part of a larger organization, but truly can uh, devote the intellectual resources, thinking, new think tank, coming up with a special thing, and eventually probably a, a, an academy since uh, the assets and capabilities for space is different from the other military services? Well, of course, there's a great symbiosis between air and space, and we anticipate that there will still be a cooperative relationship. The Space Force doesn't want to spend their time and effort building a chaplaincy, a band, a, an academy, uh, the kinds of things where air can work with space, uh, the Space Forces, especially welcoming of minimizing the overhead and, and using cooperative base management and those kinds of things. As, as you would predict, uh, those 64 other entities that have something to do with space do not readily give up that authority. So it will take time. But over time, the space force is picking up uh, more and more of what has been the space uh, responsibilities of other entities. We work closely with NASA and the NRO and uh, Commerce Department and others, Transportation Department and others that have space interests. But for the military interests, we will hope to, over time at least, concentrate all of that within the Space Force portfolio. So it's an evolutionary process to uh, be it the go-to, in effect, the go-to place for, uh, for, for space. Um, one of the challenges in the military and has been, it seems, forever is uh, efficient acquisition and development of new systems. And uh, your predecessor, I think, helped cut the number of layers in the Air Force acquisitions from 14 layers down to four. Exactly. How are you, in creating this new uh, Space Force, avoid the kind of bureaucratic uh, weight, what they call EROM's law, which is Moore's law spelled backwards, where <laughs> it seems to... Uh, uh, it took four years to do one system. It's got to take 40 to do the next. And in essence, how do you get the skunk works? Skunk works is the word they use. When you take it out of the regular bureaucracy, you need to get something done quickly. You go to a company or something, go to the side, do it, forget about all the rules and regulations, get it done quickly. It's been done from time to time in military emergencies. How do you get a kind of skunk works uh, culture so uh, you don't have to uh, take emergency measures? It's uh, being done in internally. Ah, Steve, that's exactly it. That's exactly what the Space Force is looking to do. We have gone through the government and looked at who does this the best. And as you described, my predecessor, Secretary Heather Wilson, took 14 layers of acquisition approvals and cut it down to four. We're taking those four and looking for better ways of doing it. Um, we are adopting policies and practices that have been used in the Skunk Works, uh, the best of the Skunk Works capability, and asking for authority for that to be the Space Force way of doing things. Now, predictably, all of those 14 layers have their own ideas of how it ought to be done, and it, we've faced uh, opposition to those kinds of changes by each of those layers and by the management of each of those layers. Yet, remarkably, we have gotten approval of uh, a tranche of requested acquisitions reform through the Pentagon. We're working on getting it through the other agencies that we work with. Uh, some will require congressional action. Others are just going to take policy changes. It's a slow process to get a fast acquisition system, but uh, we're we have to work through that in order to have that fast acquisition system that we think the, uh, the mission deserves. How cooperative is uh, Congress, both the in general idea of a space force that seems to be picking up some speed there, 
but also in the specifics. Like they, when they created the Space Force, they put some strange cap on personnel that you uh, couldn't add to. Walk us through that thing and uh, how is Congress going to be cooperative in uh, enabling you to create this unique, uh, fast-acting culture? Of course, congressional reaction is mixed. Uh, But what I've been encouraged to see is when this idea first came up, it was a joke. People mocked it. Uh, But then as they thought about how vital space is to everything we do, Many people have quietly tiptoed over to the side of, oh, yes, we do need a space force. This is more important. One congressman said, it's the most important thing I'll do in my entire tenure. It is gaining in not just acceptance, but enthusiasm. So there was reluctance at first. There were naysayers at first. But I haven't heard opposition from Congress or from people looking out for the American public uh, in the recent past. All of a sudden, I think we are seeing that, oh, yes, this is an essential and we need to be supportive of it and make sure it's efficient. Now, nobody wants to just create new executive agencies. So there is a drive to make this efficient and make it as nimble and operative, free of encumbrances in bureaucracy as possible. And that's, uh, that's what our mission is to make it the make it the agency that others would aspire to be. We want the Space Force to adopt policies that others are going to look over and say, yeah, we'd like to be able to do it that way too. So adopting the efficiency and uh, alacrity that the Skunk Works was known for. Briefly define, as you see it, the mission of the Space Force. When you say space, we think uh, you know, fighting in space, uh, Skywalker and all that kind of thing. It's not uh, astronauts fighting in space, but uh, weapons can be introduced in space. How do we defend these uh, assets, these satellites we have up there? What is the specific, how would you describe the specific mission of the Space Force and why we need a separate service to make sure this job gets done and not lost in a bureaucratic muck of uh, the Pentagon? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I can say that. You can't. <laughs> well, Steve, as you know, the Air and Space Forces are the only two services that have been built since the 1700s. The Army, Navy, and Marines, they were all around when Thomas Jefferson was president. They were already in existence. The Air Force was created because technology has moved on, and the Space Force is being created for the very same reason. Air is the domain where aggression can take place. And space, similarly, is a domain upon which we depend and whose defense is essential to our way of life. So uh, the, the mission of the Space Force is to protect America's national interests and those of our allies and to make sure that our way of life that is dependent upon space is not intruded by enemy behavior. So that means having in the future assets in space, so to speak, that uh, can deter aggressive actions like we saw from Russia, China in uh, recent times. We need to deter malevolent behavior or malevolent action. We, we want them to behave. We are happy for the peaceful use of space to be available to everyone. We don't want to control space to everyone else's detriment. We want to make it accessible to, for the benevolent use by all. But if there is bad action there, we will not be a victim. We will not have America be held hostage to uh, malevolent action by others. So that's somewhat evidenced by our GPS system that did not have defenses. We were blithely thinking that this was a place where free access and um, availability was a good idea and that others would abide by that. Now we know that we can't count on that. So we need to be able to protect ourselves. And so tell us why the Space Force is part of the Air Force. Uh, people always use the analogy of the Marines and the Navy, but some say, gee, the Space Force should have been separate. What's the rationale of having them still under the same roof, so to speak, even though they're two separate organizations now? They are. There are great efficiencies that are derived from having the two work cooperatively. The Air Force is providing a lot of the common 
services that would be very much more expensive if the Space Force were to build that for themselves. There will be things that they do that they must build for themselves within the Space Force. But the Space Force is not a labor-intensive. It's a smarts-intensive. It's a technology-intensive. It's a capability-intensive. 40 people with a GPS, I mean. <laughs> exactly. That entire... When you think about it, it's, that's a great metaphor for what the Space Force does. 40 people, eight or 10 on a shift, sitting in Colorado, run the entire GPS system that is free to the world and that people around the world use incessantly. Uh, the GPS system is operated by a team of a, a, a crew, a staff of eight to 10 people at a time sitting at computer consoles in Colorado. I mean, I would put forward the GPS system as the system that has had a bigger impact in a shorter time on all of mankind than any other invention in mankind's time. You can think of fire or the wheel or the printing press. What would compete with the GPS system that has been fully operational just 25 years and is used by so many people around the world with so few people managing it? It's a remarkable uh, reality of our time. This touches on, uh, you mentioned other countries. Uh, you've been working on alliances. We're not in this alone. Uh, walk us through countries like Britain and others, whether it's uh, particular countries working together in the Arctic or particular countries working in various aspects of space uh, to truly make this an international effort. So perhaps hostile powers would uh, might think twice realizing the rest of the world is with us and wanting uh, open spaces, just as uh, years ago we wanted to had a policy of open seas. Exactly. People want access to this, the ultimate high ground space. So around the world, many countries we have worked with for decades, other countries are coming to us and saying, we'd really like to partner with you. We are working with the usual participants, the uh, countries like the United Kingdom and Australia, New Zealand, Canada, are longtime great friends. But we're also working closely with the countries like Norway, with whom we've partnered. They have saved us a lot of money by allowing us to put a payload on one of their uh, satellites. Uh, we're working with other countries to do things cooperatively. They get benefit from some of our assets, and we get benefit from some of other nations' space pursuits. And uh We've been talking a lot about uh, defense, but one of the things we alluded to it earlier, one of the tasks you're going to have is junk in space. Uh, there's a lot of so-called space garbage up there that can do a lot of harm. It's never been policed before, like used, people used to throw stuff out the window of their cars and junk up the uh, countryside. Walk us through, uh, how is that going to be international agreement? How, how, how do we deal with this uh, problem? As you say, these things, little pieces, 17,000 miles an hour can do real damage. Yeah, it is uh, one of the challenges of our era is finding ways. Uh, there have been proposed inventions of giant nets to capture space junk. Uh, once, as the case in 2007, when the Chinese blew up their own satellite and created thousands of pieces of junk. Once they have been dispersed, they continue to create a debris field that endangers everything in its path, and it doesn't stay close. It, uh, it disperses. So it is a very dangerous matter. And of course, Air Force has been, Space Force now does, the tracking of space junk above a certain size. And recently, just in the past month, we alerted a space station to maneuver in order to avoid being hit by some recorded space junk that was headed its way. So we need to, it's one of the problems of our time that we need to figure out, not just being able to predict it, which is our, our best effort now, but how can we harness this? How can we clean this up and not create more? It is the height of bad behavior to be the creator of space junk, uh, but being called a bad behavior is not enough uh, discipline to keep some of our international actors from uh, creating space debris. Uh, meteors. We all know in the Earth's history what a meteor can do to life on Earth. 
Uh, is that going to be one of the tasks of the Space Force, uh, not just tracking meteors, but figuring out the technology to uh, deflect them before they hit us? Meteors and asteroids. Uh, right now, just this week, uh, we have had action with Bennu, the, an asteroid where NASA, a team from NASA, is uh, scooping up a portion of an asteroid to see to learn what we can find out about the origin of the universe, the origin of, of uh, these materials that are in our cosmos. Uh, meteors, similarly, it's one of the challenges we've seen how much damage can be done, including speculatively uh, the cause of disappearance in dinosaurs. And uh, we need to be able to predict those. And that is something that uh, NASA has been working on and the Air Force will, and Space Force will work with them. And uh, private companies, we all saw uh, what SpaceX uh, did with the International Space Station a few months ago. Is that going to be part of uh, what you do with Space Force? To uh, You don't have to reinvent the wheel. You can uh, work with uh, the private sector and not be bogged down with all the rules and regulations to get, get things done. You're going to see more of this cooperation with private companies? We certainly will. And it's SpaceX uh, has demonstrated that we can get things done much more efficiently than what we have been doing them. So SpaceX is now a full partner in the launch business with the United States Space Force and Air Force. And we will continue to see great cooperation and partnerships as we have in the past. We have worked with private providers. We're going to have more private providers in the future to the concentration of in the defense industry uh, has been something of some concern in the recent past. And we're going to do what we can in both the air and space force to broaden our offerings, make a more competitive environment for our defense industries. Madam Secretary, uh, before I let you go, I also have to uh, thank you again. Uh, back in 1996, when I was running for president, you headed up uh, as chair of my efforts in Arizona. You won. And unlike other states, under your leadership, we won an upset victory. So thank you again for that. And thank you for being with us. And uh, Godspeed on your uh, unique mission, both at the Air Force and with the critical Space Force. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. I cherish our friendship and, uh, and I look forward to working with you in any way. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.